This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the events, issues, and people that are shaping our world. My name is Mike Cosper. I'm the director of media at Christianity Today. Russell Moore, my co-host, is out this week, but I am joined by some guests for the conversations today. I'm going to talk with Miroslav Volf about the war in Ukraine one year later. I'm going to talk with Kate Shelnut about the reporting she's done on the handling of abuse cases at John MacArthur's Grace Community Church. Then I'm going to talk with Ed Stetzer, who was recently appointed as the dean of the Talbot School of Theology at Biola. We're going to talk about Christian higher ed, the latest news from Asbury, and what's happening with this upcoming generation of students. So stay with us. Okay, today is the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A year ago, the world was sort of looking at this, looking at the events that were unfolding, and the expectation was this was going to be over quickly. Russia was going to overwhelm Ukraine, overwhelm its borders, and there was a real sort of fatalism in the air. And of course, the story has been quite different. The resistance, the resilience of Ukraine has been remarkable. The leadership of Volodymyr Zelensky has been remarkable. And not only that, as that resilience, as that courage has emerged on the global stage, the world has responded. Europe has responded. Um, after a, a lot of hedging, they've responded with support. The United States has sort of steadily expanded their support over the course of the year. And then this past weekend, President Biden undertook this pretty remarkable for a, a sitting president covert trip to Kiev to, again, stand with Ukraine, stand with Ukrainians and echo his commitment to support for the cause. So joining me today to talk about some of these events and to talk about sort of the broader perspective, the broader implications for Christians as they're thinking about and trying to understand these events in Ukraine is Dr. Miroslav Volf. Dr. Volf is a theologian and a public intellectual. He is a professor at the Yale Divinity School and the director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Dr. Volf, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It's wonderful to be with you and have that conversation. Yeah, so I feel like a good place to start actually is with you, with your story. You were born in Croatia. You grew up under the Socialist Republic of Yugoslavia. And so you have very direct experience of life living under sort of the shadow and threat of a Russia with globalist ambitions, totalitarian ambitions. As you have processed the story on a personal level, how has this reflected some of what you witnessed and were a part of in your earlier life? You know, it may be ancient history and history of a faraway corner of the world for most uh, Americans to either recall or to know. But uh, Yugoslavia was has early on, broken, and Tito, as the president of Yugoslavia, has early on broken with Russia, partly because there was a sense that the country would be swallowed up. And it was possible for Tito to do so because he was uh, instrumental in liberating the whole country from Nazi occupation. 
but that meant that we always lived at the edge of the Soviet influence. The border was some 30 kilometers from the place where I was born, uh, Hungary at that time, and where I grew up uh, as well. So we always felt there was a sense of a threat and kind of negotiating that space between, on the one hand, the West and the East, uh, between capitalism and communism, was mm. space in which I was born. Tito was then one of the founders of non-aligned nations, and that was an attempt to find the third way between two great, at that time, systems that were dominating the world. But I think you're right. It's always was always there, present as a potential threat. One of the things I wanted to ask is, in the run-up to the Russian invasion to Ukraine, there was this sense of sort of doom and fatalism. And then there was this kind of wonderful surprise of the courage of the Ukrainian people. I'm wondering, again, as somebody who has direct experience growing up in the region, did it surprise you to see that kind of show of, of strength after the invasion? Yeah, kind of. there were two surprises, right? Uh, first surprise is that people kind of knew that it was coming and saw it coming and didn't quite believe when it came to be. Mm -hmm. I had very similar experience when the war in former Yugoslavia broke out. You see everything moving in that direction, and yet somehow you have this hope that it would not happen. And the second surprise in terms of Ukraine is the one that you mentioned quite rightly. It was surprising how able and how resilient Ukrainian forces were. But it was also surprising now, as we read about it, how inept the oh. occupiers were <laughs> and kind of ineptness of one and uh, intelligence of, of the other served mm -hmm. to make it the case that uh, overwhelming power could not overwhelm uh, Ukraine. As a theologian, a lot of your work has been born out of your own experience and your own study into the nature of these conflicts and what does faithful Christian witness look like on a global stage like this. I wonder, when you think about the resistance that was necessary, the violence that was necessary to resist this kind of occupying force and, and really what came with it in terms of war crimes and incredible, you know, a cult of death in many ways that came with Russia's invasion, how do you think about that theologically? How would you challenge Christians to think about the role of a faithful church in the face of that kind of totalitarian threat? Well, there are kind of two sides of that question and, in a sense, of that threat. One side is what has been playing on in Russia itself and the role that religion, in this case in particular, the Orthodox Church, has had in the run-up to the invasion. So kind of alignment of aggressor's power with a certain self-understanding of the church uh, as a guardian of the people and supporter of this. And on the other side, I think there is a, there is a kind of question about a role of the church and role of faith in the defensive side of things in Ukraine. What does it mean to use power in situations of this uh, sort? Uh, not to use it means simply to let not just the country be overrun, but people be also deeply harmed. On the other hand, to use violence seems to be to betray, or at least come to very close to betraying 
the true character of the Christian faith as we see it in the Gospels. And I had this kind of tension, experienced this tension in former Yugoslavia, where on the one hand, I had the blood of the victims calling uh, to high heaven uh, for somebody to stand with them and to defend them. On the other hand, you had the blood of the lamb telling you that it is at the heart of your faith and the heart of your humanity, the sense that you ought to love your enemies as Christ Mm -hmm. has loved humanity, sinful humanity, as that was actually the heart of Christ's mission. How does one put these two things and keep those two things together? That is the great challenge, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. And to me, it seems like One thing that cannot be given up is a love for the enemy. I I think that's a cornerstone of the Christian faith. It's the cornerstone that was laid by the unconditionality of God's love, by Christ's work, by explicit commands that we find in the Bible. And then the question is, is it possible to think about defensive uh, war of the sort that Ukraine is waging as a form of a loving one's uh, enemy, severe love, Mm. uh, but nonetheless a love. That's Mm. on the side of kind of agency. And I think another challenge uh, to me is what the war and engagement, even in such defensive actions, does to the soul of the one who is engaged in those actions. Or you can put it this way, how can one prevent the enmity that is directed against one to be internalized and flipped and become enmity against the one who is my own enemy? How do I prevent from my enemy, who makes me an an enemy to them, not to become my enemy in the sense Mm -hmm. that, uh, and the actions of one to elicit the action of the other? I recall hearing you say something not long ago where you talked about the act of resistance is actually a way of loving the enemy because it's a, in a sense, it's a, it's a way to restrain their own evil, right? It's a way to restrain them from doing harm, from indulging in evil in their own motives and motivations. I think that's a fascinating way to think about it. And and I think too, I mean, I wonder your thoughts on this. You know, one of the things you see in, in stories that I think represent expressions of virtue and valor in war is when a victor ends up showing respect for the humanity of those that they've defeated in war. You know, if you look at World War II, the stark contrast between the ways that powers on either side of that conflict treated prisoners of war Again, there were problems. It's not that this was a universal thing on the part of the allies, but generally speaking, there was a restraint on the part of the allies because of their respect for the dignity of those that they'd conquered or captured or whatever that certainly wasn't exercised as a part of Nazi policy. And I think it's a framing that's pretty evident, at least in what's coming out news-wise out of Ukraine as well, is that you see acts of atrocity, war crimes already documented on the part of Russia And yet there's something about the sort of spirit of freedom and dignity that's informing Ukraine and informing their actions that has, again, thus far, to the degree that we know, restrained them from responding in kind. Yeah, and I think this kind of discipline that you describe, and I think what is involved is a certain form of discipline, a kind of a 
moral, but maybe also legal check on the behavior which expresses a regard for the humanity of every person. That seemed to me absolutely essential. And from what we can tell right now, it is clearly manifested in a more pervasive way in on the side of the Ukraine forces uh, than it is uh, on the mm-hmm. side of Russia, quite apart from the idea that one is a war of aggression and the other one is defensive, uh, defensive mm-hmm. war. I think that needs to be strengthened, that needs to be kind of nurtured. And it seems to me also that it's hard to w- wage war without actually making your hands dirty. If we think that that's possible, I think we fool ourselves. And that's why, in some sense, I I think that this tradition in which those who have waged war return back from war, not with a triumphant glee, but with joy on the one hand over the victory, but at the same time over the profound sadness of what has actually occurred. That is to say, one can feel certain kind of triumph and rejoicing over liberation, but one can also mourn the loss to oneself and the loss to others that one has oneself inflicted in order to get to that uh, joy. And I think if we nurture these two feelings together, rather than always wanting to kind of clean our soul to have either one emotion or the other emotion, I think we, we would do really well, which would be to me to kind of enact what is one of the basic reformational convictions. Namely, mm-hmm. that we as human beings, even when we embrace faith, are at the same time sinner and justified. Both are yeah. true of us. Yeah. Well, and it, I think it speaks to another element, particularly in the moment we live in now, an element that I think makes this particularly challenging. And I would argue if you look at some of the stories that have come from soldiers who returned from Iraq and Afghanistan, you see this often. We lack any real process or practice for grief in our mm-hmm. culture. You hear these stories of soldiers who come back, and many soldiers came back from Vietnam and they came back to scorn, you know, and there's a lot of that kind of story. With the return from Iraq and Afghanistan, it, it seems there was generally more support, generally more acceptance. It, it looked different. And yet, many of the stories of post traumatic stress, I mean, there's some profoundly good memoirs that have accounted for this. And then there's just evidence in the stories you hear of deaths of despair amongst veterans, that that lack of a category for grief that war calls for, it demands for on both sides, I think takes an enormous toll as well. Yeah, and it requires also of the people who weren't there and who are now facing the soldiers, returning soldiers, it requires of them not to say the war is over, let's go. Let's, mm-hmm. let's do w- w- what we do normally. It needs to attend to this uh, mm-hmm. effects that the even successfully waged wars uh, have. Yeah. That to me is really, uh, really very, very important. I mean, it, it is connected also with some of the church practices. I mean, I'm thinking, of, for instance, of forgiveness. Forgiveness, in my judgment, is not incompatible with discipline. So that there's kind of a severity to forgiveness in the sense that 
I may forgive you for the deed, which I always do with my, uh, with, uh, I've done with my children. I forgive them right away, right? But nonetheless, there's a kind of disciplinary action that is that is quite quite appropriate. There's a kind of unfinished business, even with the finished business, so to speak, of acting in a loving way. And that requires its own mode of, uh, of love, uh, presence to the other person, precisely in the disciplines that they are undergoing, just as you were mentioning earlier, in the grief that they experience because of the experiences they've had. To pull back, I mean, one more thing I wanted to make sure we, we talked about is the way Russian aggression represents this rising tide of nationalism. This is something else you've spoken a lot about. And I wonder, you know, in the states now, particularly among this sort of rising coalition inside of the Republican Party, you're hearing a lot of language of nationalism. You're hearing a lot of sort of open celebration of of nationalism itself, and then a quieter and less overt, but clear if you know how to sort of read the read the tea leaves or listen to the dog whistles, however you want to, whatever metaphor you want to use, mm-hmm. of a white nationalism, of a, of a even sort of ethnic nationalism that's on the rise. Is it fair to see parallels between the rising nationalism in, say, Russia or, or Hungary or, and the rise of nationalism in the United States? I think it's a part also of a larger phenomenon, phenomenon that is visible in China, that is there present in India, that's present in, to a certain extent, uh, also uh, in, in Brazil. We have this rise of autocratic regimes. And what may be going on, and I was struck by reading recently uh, about this discussion, whether something, there's a kind of disaffection with liberalism, political liberalism, and Mm. then the rise of what one might describe almost civilizational states. So it's not simply nation qua nation, but Russia sees itself as civilizational state in analogy to what China sees itself as this longest continuous uh, civilization in in the world that has a state uh, also. You can see a European Union as a kind of emerging such civilizational quote-unquote state. And it seems to me that these kinds of groupings that are often agonistic uh, to one another they seem to inadequately, they seem reaction to kind of global cosmopolitanism. But on the other hand, they live from this internal sense of cohesion that is bought at the expense of internal oppression and partially external uh, aggression. And in that way, they seem to me a very dangerous and kind of deeply unchristian phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear of something like Christian nationalism arising or in the name of Christianity, Europe is resisting whatever Europe is resisting, I always think something similar is happening as what happened in Russia. There is mm-hmm. a kind of almost like a space is declared to be Russian, without much uh, uh, orthodox, without much reference to the actual content of the Christian faith. And this hollowing out of Christian faith to mere sacred canopy over 
a particular space and domain, which is either insular or aggressive, it does, doesn't matter. That seems to me to be a deeply problematic. And when I observe what's happening with some of the evangelical communities in this country, this is what bothers me the most, or Catholic, um, also in Orthodox, sure. because those are deeply Christian traditions. You go to liturgy and listen to liturgy, and you think well, all of it is kind of fundamentally shot through with deep Christian convictions. And yet at the same time, when it comes to its functioning in the larger setting, it functions as this contentless aura of sacred that is imposed upon my tribe, my sense of common belonging, my civilization or whatever that is. When I look at the the rise of nationalism, number one, part of it just looks sort of cyclical, right? Like in modernity, this kind of nationalism is something that you've seen sort of ebb and flow. And I can't help but wonder, like, is there an extent to which that phenomenon and that sort of, and that ebb and flow in a sense, it's reflective of like the secular spirit of the age, right? Meaning if people are no longer by their nature finding a sense of meaning in faith, spirituality, transcendence, then they're looking for a compelling story that provides that meaning, right? In a sense, like those are stories that are being told that somebody can look at and seek a sense of purpose, seek a sense of meaning. I'm part of this larger narrative. And I, I can't help but wonder, and like I said, I'm curious your thoughts. I can't help but wonder how much of that is a reflection of secularism and of the difficulty that a person living in this age has in finding meaning. We do have something like sacralization of the secular narrative. It becomes imbued with sacredness with the help of religious traditions. But there is kind of inverse process of hmm. secularization of the Christian faith. That is not right. a sense of loss of the belief, but a sense that this belief is completely made subordinate to fully secular ends that have not been shaped by the faith itself. Now, if that isn't secularization of faith, <laughs> while right. claiming that the faith is vibrant, I don't know what is. And we have yeah. seen such phenomena also in uh, in, in, in Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, we see it also in Christianity. And over the century, it has been kind of sh showing up, especially in the wake of uh, modernity. Now, that seems to me something that requires us to think deeply about, because that means that faith is being turned into an instrument to achieve ends that are not defined by the faith itself. And that seems to go exact contrary to the key monotheist conviction. That is to say that God is the God of all of reality. God mm -hmm. is not a tool. If anything, you are God's tool, not right. the other way around. <laughs> right, right. That should be fairly straightforward. Straightforward, um, right? But, but it isn't. Yeah. No. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wolf, for joining us. Dr. Wolf is the author most recently of The Home of God, a book that came out last year. And later this month, Life Worth Living will be coming out from Penguin Publishing. He's also the host of the podcast for the life of the world. So again, thank you, Dr. Wolf. Pleasure as always to see you again. As always, very good to talk to you, Mike. 
This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. So two weeks ago, Christianity Today published a story about the handling of some issues related to domestic abuse and sexual abuse at Grace Community Church. This church is pastored by John MacArthur, one of the probably best known evangelical preachers, writers um, in in the United States. And the reporter that broke that story for CT is Kate Shellnut. Kate is with me here today. So Kate, could you maybe give us a bird's eye view for those who are not familiar with the story at this point? So the story looked at patterns in biblical counseling and in pastoral counseling at John MacArthur's Grace Community Church. I ended up hearing from eight women at length about their experiences when they went to the church with concerns about abuse in their marriages, their husbands being abusive towards them or towards their children. And these women shared with me a pattern of being told to forgive and return to their husbands, even in these cases of abuse. They were told not to report to authorities, not to seek protection through restraining orders. And then even in some cases, uh, when they had done so, they were counseled to go back to their husbands at times where they felt like even when their husbands hadn't repented or shown signs of improvement. The story follows a trajectory of an elder named Han Cho, who resigned last March from the church where he had come to faith and served as an elder and been involved for over 15 years. And he was asked to look into a 20-year-old case of church discipline against the wife of a man who went on to be convicted of child molestation and abuse. And at the time, they had punished her and kind of ousted her from the church publicly as their church discipline goes because she had refused to lift a restraining order against him out of concerns for her kids. So when they refused to reconsider that case 20 years later, when it came to light through a story by Julie Royce, Han ended up leaving as a matter of conviction. And then only to find out in the months to come, more and more women had come to him to share, like I had found, that they had similar experiences. And then in November, there was another legal case of a woman who had a very similar thing happen where even to the point that elders and church leaders were siding with her husband in court against her, even though she had documented grooming behavior and abuse patterns against her husband. So the story looks at kind of the parallels between this 20-year-old case and this recent case from last year and the string of women in between. And it also raises these bigger questions about 
the nature of biblical counseling, specifically when it comes to abuse in marriages and how pastors and churches balance caring for victims and and what we know about trauma-informed care and this desire to keep the families intact, to keep marriages intact, and to maintain biblical views of headship and, and complementarianism in marriage too. I think one of the questions that probably many people ask when the, a story like this comes out is you look at a person like MacArthur, you know, he leads a church, he leads a seminary, he has a teaching and preaching ministry that goes well beyond with radio and all that sort of thing. So one of the questions would be, is this the kind of thing that's happening in the church without his awareness, because easily inside of large institutions, right, things can happen sort of in corners and, and often ways that someone can easily kind of say, no, my hands are clean of this. I had nothing to do with this. Or are there indications that there's sort of full awareness and full support in terms of how these women are treated? Is, is some of this discipline even public? This was one of the questions that came up in my reporting in a couple of ways. There were a lot of women who thought, oh, if my leaders knew what was happening, if they really knew like what I was going through, they would be treating my husband differently and they would be taking this seriously. They thought that about the men who were overseeing their their cases, who were like the overseeing elders. And they thought that about John MacArthur because everyone who goes to Grace Community Church has a really, really high view of John MacArthur. There were a number of women who described themselves as people who had read his books and his commentaries prior to going to the church, and even one who, when her job moved her to Southern California, her first thought was, I'm going to John MacArthur's church. And so these were women who were really devoted to him and his teachings. And when you think that someone has a high view of scripture as John MacArthur's reputation is, you think surely they would know what to do in these cases. So a lot of people thought, oh yes, if he knew, then he would do something differently. But then a lot of the evidence that came up in the reporting was that he did know. For women who, like Eileen Gray, who were issued church discipline, it was him who announced the discipline, and he's in on the elder meetings where these things are discussed. I think Hancho also was really insistent on trying to remind not just MacArthur, but all of the elders of the details of these cases to say, you may have heard of this, but did you see what has come up? And sending them again and again information over the past year. So hmm. I don't think that anything in my story would have been anything that John MacArthur or the elders had not heard of before I reported it. Mm-hmm. So if you are putting on like your most empathetic hat, right, thinking about what's going on inside of an elder meeting where these where these events are taking place, you made mention of this a moment ago in terms of there's a priority, and this is true across a lot of evangelical churches. The priority is what can we do to keep the marriage together? What can we do to keep the family intact? How would you understand the internal conversations that are going on that would allow for clear evidence of domestic abuse to more or less be ignored or sort of trumped by this larger theological principle of, now we got to keep the family together. How is that justified inside of that conversation? I don't think that anyone is saying to themselves or framing it as, we are going to tell this woman to stay in an abusive marriage. I think there are two things that could happen. One would be that the elders, the pastors, see signs of change and repentance at a real bare minimum. And I think this came up in the story where things like 
oh, this woman is reporting that her kids are being abused or groomed at home, but we saw him at Sunday school with the kids or in a monitored visit with the kids, and they seem so happy. So they would say, obviously he's changed, right? Because he didn't do anything during this time that we watched him and he knew he was being watched in a very controlled and limited setting. Or even one time after the police were called and that was reported over a a domestic violence incident and that was reported to the pastor, the pastor said, well, I want you to go home because he just told us that he's not going to do it again to you. So they think problem solved in a real quick way Maybe because of their hope for repentance, their hope for signs of change and signs for good, and he's not going to do it, and he made a promise, and he's working towards it, when really what we know from patterns of people who are abusive, especially severely abusive, and especially abusive towards young children, that it's not that quick of a fix. Mm -hmm. And so it is a little bit of this tension between what we know from psychology and research and studies and, and even just practice and experience of how abusive men behave um, and how much it takes. And this real overconfidence, I think, in the ability, and God can do anything, Mm -hmm. but I think that's the, the thing that they think, oh, this change is already happening when women are saying, no, behind closed doors, it's not. We don't see that signs Mm -hmm. of repentance and change that would be needed for a marriage to be in a safe place where you would encourage two people to be living together again. Yeah. Well, and some of that's even reflective of the theological principles behind biblical counseling. There's a lot of suspicion of even the idea of pathological behavior, right? It's things get defined inside biblical counseling. It's a very rigid approach to counseling that ends up defining things very black and white in terms of it's sinful behavior, it's not sinful behavior, it's conscious behavior. And so we repent of our conscious sins. And so it, it allows a little bit for that kind of flat interpretation of of someone's behavior. Right. I talked to a few, a lot of counselors actually for this piece, and a few of them brought up that same theme of if biblical counseling is focused on finding sin, it can also be focused on finding sin in both parties and of leveling that sin in a way that is not proportionate to reality, right? To say, hey, you got angry and you resent him. That's a sin for him being abusive towards you physically, psychologically, spiritually, or whatever. And so now we both have to sit down and confess to that. And you did bad. He did bad. We're all forgiven here. Let's move on without saying, Mm -hmm. actually, that's a whole different kind of issue to deal with. It is sin. They both are sin. But we can't pretend like we're we're at a tie game here, especially in the power dynamics of marriage, right? And that this is Mm -hmm. language that some conservative evangelicals reject entirely, feel uncomfortable about, or associate with other things. So once you talk about, well, what about the power dynamics? Is a woman really on equal footing in a church that teaches headship, in a church where she's expected to submit to her husband? Is she really on equal footing to stand for herself and to to say things? And once you start saying that, it becomes well, this is all woke victim mentality. We didn't talk about this 15, 20 years ago, so it can't be true or helpful for the life of the church. Well, pulling back then a bit, you've also done quite a bit of reporting on sexual abuse issues inside of the SBC and other similar kinds of cases and other churches. How does this fit within that broader picture? Do you have a sense that this is a repetition of a pattern, sort of a new expression of the pattern? How, How do those things relate together? Right. As I was reporting this story, 
I came to see what was happening at Grace Community Church as almost a like a hyper incubation chamber for a lot of dynamics that I think are tied to abuse in other kinds of churches. But Grace Community Church is a very specific kind of church. Even within evangelicalism, a lot of churches might agree with John MacArthur's teaching of scripture, but not completely with his polity of how he does church or or even how he talks about marriage and family. So I thought, oh, there are some things here that happen to different extents in different churches, but this is a really concentrated version of it. And mm-hmm. my thinking was maybe some of these stories would be the kinds of things that people at other evangelical churches, at Southern Baptist churches, could read about and start to think, am I doing that to some extent in my own congregation? I think two of the most convicting patterns that I saw were, one, the number of women who, when I said, what did make you finally leave Grace Community Church or realize that this council wasn't healthy or right or sustainable for you, it was almost always someone outside of their church. It was my relative. It was another Christian friend who didn't go to this church. It was a pastor at another church. And so this idea that people would have to go outside of their faith community that they've invested in. And this is, I mean, none of these people were like nominal members of Grace Community Church. This is one where you're pretty sold out and believe in it if, if you belong there and attend regularly and are seeking right counsel from pastors. And so the fact that they had to go outside to feel like they got the advice that was best for them and safe and protected and still Christian, like still within people who, who support mm. and share those convictions. That was one thing. And the other was how many were more like hurt by the church's response even then their own abuse to say, hey, once I realized my husband was like this, I could kind of understand what was happening there, but I couldn't understand why no one at the church saw it and why I was left in that situation. And so I think those things should really cause leaders to think, hey, when someone comes to me with allegations, with suggestions around abuse, what I say to them, especially in like those early conversations has a huge impact on the trajectory of their lives and their spiritual lives. Like that I just to emphasize how serious those conversations are. And it's not like you don't exercise your own judgment or discernment in any situation, but when a woman comes forward, it's really important that she feel heard and understood and that the pastor recognizes the gravity of the situation that caused her to come forward in the first place and not try to immediately minimize or find a solution or defend her husband. And that was the other thing that like, it felt like women were held to a really high standard of evidence where Mm -hmm. for every claim they made, they had documents, recordings, pictures, police reports. And even then sometimes they weren't believed. And yet for men, it felt like to them that the testimony of their husbands was enough for sometimes pastors to take their sides. So the last question I wanted to ask is, you've spoken to so many victims related to this story and to others. Do you have a sense that there's a sense of solidarity in these stories being shared and people saying, oh, I'm not alone, I'm not crazy? Or I guess maybe even a broader question like, how are these women doing? Are they finding community? Are they finding safe places on the other side of this kind of grief and loss? It's hard because I wish I could say 
yes, this, you know, reporting is is the balm that we hope and intend it to be for them to feel seen and recognized. That does happen. And I think since this story has been published, probably close to 30 people have reached out, not just from Grace Community Church, but from other GCC connected churches to say, oh, wow, this happened to me too. And even over the course of reporting, I would hear a woman say a quote that was told to her and I'll say, oh, you're like the third person to tell me that same quote. Mm. And even then that they felt like, okay, wow. But there's also a huge grief in knowing the extent of what's happening. Eileen Gray, whose story was the 20-year-old case that kind of prompted this last year, she felt compelled to move forward by the fact that so many women had come, but she also felt like, could I have done something sooner? Like the weight of the fact that this is such a big pattern weighed on her a lot. And so I think if I can't speak for survivors, but I see as much sense of dejection and brokenheartedness with every story that comes forward of like, again, another, as I do, okay, finally, we're being seen, we're being heard, people understand what's happening here, there's a recognition for it. So it's hard to tell like what the net reaction would be when both of those things are true. And yeah, there's also it depends on the community, right? For Grace Community Church, this is a segment of evangelicalism that's particularly conservative and particularly sensitive to the ideology around like the Me Too movement and victims advocacy, that there's a real baggage that comes from being the kind of person saying these things. Mm -hmm. And I'll also say for every woman who I talk to who is still involved in a church community, I think Praise God, what a miracle. How that many of them had a point where they thought, I could never imagine myself back in that again. And some of them are still kind of praying through, I believe God. I I think God has sustained me, but I don't see how I could trust church again. And that's another like severe warning for pastors of the real effects of a church mishandling a case like this. And I also want to say, this isn't easy. This, this is, that was one of the points of criticism people came up. Someone wrote on Twitter, oh, do you expect biblical counselors to bat a thousand? No, absolutely not. Like these cases are hard. People who are abusive are manipulators and groomers, and there are going to be times of getting it wrong. But a real testimony is when you say, oh, we should have done more earlier. We should have helped you. We didn't do that. And their lack of repentance from the church when they do see the truth, which is, again, the heart of the Eileen Gray story, is the real testimony. I don't think anyone, you know, these people married men who were abusers. They too were were duped. They didn't know who they would end up with five, 10 years into their marriage who was behaving in ways that were so troubling. So there are going to be times where it's so sensitive to know what decision do we make? What advice do we give? But when you see that the advice that you've given us has led to hurt and turmoil in a family, in a woman's life, then it's really important, I think, for churches to be able to own up to that and repent for that. Okay. Thank you for your reporting on this. I think it means a lot to people who have suffered in the ways that you've described. And thank you for joining me today on the bulletin. Thanks. We will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. 
Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Before we close up today, joining me for our final segment is Dr. Ed Stetzer. Ed is an old, old, old friend old, old. <laughs> who I've known for, for two decades. Since you were 19, uh, 19, I think. That's right. And this week, Ed, it was announced that you were going to be the new dean of the Talbot School of Theology at Biola. And just wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about, number one, to talk a little bit about the opportunity that's in front of you at Biola. Why did you choose to go there? And what are you hoping to see in part, because I want to hear obviously from you, but in part, like more broadly, there's a lot going on with Christian education yeah. right now, Christian yeah. higher ed. Yeah. And I, I felt like this would be a good opportunity to, to visit some of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we saw the news at uh, Trinity International University is transitioning to an online, not in-person undergrad experience, focusing on theological education. We saw a similar follow that path at Lincoln Christian College and Seminary last year, I think it was. You know, we're in a time of some real challenges. There's what we call in academia the demographic cliff. People stopped having babies around the great financial crisis in 2007 and 8. You know, we're in a time when I think Christian college and university need to be clear who they are, what they believe, what value they add. So anyway, in the midst of all those things, I had a one-year sabbatical. And I was over in the UK teaching at Oxford for the fall. Loved that. Came back to California, actually, to finish writing a book. So, you know, when I was here, Barry Corey called me up and uh, Barry Corey, Matt Hall, and just cast a vision to me that I thought was well aligned with what God's calling was on my life in this next stage, next phase. And so here I am. We've already been living here because I was living here on sabbatical and I'm being the scholar in residence at a church called Mariners. And so uh, I'm, I'm now also the teaching pastor at Mariners Church. And so, you know, that wonderful combination. I love the church. God has chosen the church to make known his manifold wisdom. I love the academy. Wheaton has gone super well. And I'm looking forward to a new challenge at Talbot and Biola. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you were talking about these higher ed institutions and the transitions. I mean, Gordon Conwell is another one. Yeah. What do you think is behind that? Is some of that reflective of, you know, you talked about the financial crisis of 2007 affecting that. Is another effect of it either a shift in the way that churches are valuing theological education? Or are there other factors in terms of the shrinking of evangelicals in, in terms of like evangelicals who actually go to church and, yeah. you know, tithe and hire pastors? Yeah, I think there are two things you said there. So one of them is changing church practices. So there's obviously changing church practices where people are doing sort of homegrown leaders. And I think that's that's not a bad thing. Sometimes we don't get the level of training that would be good for many pastors to experience. So one of the things you'll see us do at Talbot is engage more in the local church. But I also think that when you deliver education in ways that are more accessible, for example, at Wheaton, we did modular programs. We experienced great success. We doubled our enrollment in two years. So we, we weren't declining by any stretch of the imagination, but we had to deliver theological education to often people in ministry because the path that that a lot of, I mean, I didn't follow this path. You know, I was, I was 21 years old. We graduated, John and I graduated from college, moved to the inner city of Buffalo, New York without a seminary degree and started a church among the urban poor. 
And then I did a degree on the weekend. And then I did another degree on the weekend. Then I did a demon on the weekend. Then eventually I did a PhD while we, we, we were both at Louisville. And so I did all of those things while working in other roles. And I think that's become more normative. So we're going to have a strong residential program at Talbot. We didn't have that at Wheaton in, in my school, School of Mission Ministry and Leadership. But then we're also going to say, what are other ways that we can deliver theological education? So I think that helps address changing church practices. The shrinking of evangelicalism is, is I mean, numerically, evangelicalism has bumped around a little bit, but relatively steady. We don't really know the post-COVID reality of that, but I, I don't know that that would have shown up quickly enough in the numbers at seminaries. If you look like the decline of the mainline, definitely, you know, is followed by the decline of the mainline seminaries. But, you know, the numbers, as far as in evangelical institutions, there are still a lot of students in evangelical institutions. But, you know, you mentioned Gordon Conwell, you know, them selling their property, Fuller tried to sell their property and then had issues and couldn't sell their property. I think when the model changes, the resources you need to deliver that model also change. And I think that's part of what's going on right now. One of the things that I was wondering about as I was thinking about this conversation is you've also seen so much cultural change in the church yeah. in the last few years. You can go back 10 years or so, there's been this growing division on race. 2016 comes along, growing divisions on sort of Trumpism, the rise of this new breed of nationalism. How's that affecting Christian higher ed? The students that are coming in, are they representative, like across the board of people who are on either side of that divide? Are you seeing a trend where they're sort of skewing one direction or another? Well, I think it would depend on the school. So, you know, here we are in Southern California, and probably the three major institutions would be Fuller, Talbot, and Masters. You know, there are people who would go to Fuller who wouldn't consider going to certainly Masters and probably not Talbot. But at Talbot, we try to be in that more of a broader evangelical space. Uh, we're a conservative evangelical institution. So there are going to be people who are having conversations about race and using language and describing race that other people wouldn't be. And we think that's a good, healthy conversation. We have people who come from Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal traditions, Reformed and Arminian traditions, uh, egalitarian and complementarian traditions. And so if they're comfortable with where we are, which is we're you know, a committed evangelical institution, one of the reasons things I really love about Talbot and Biola. It's very clear on its evangelical convictions. I align well with the evangelical convictions that are articulated there. So if you're comfortable coming in that space where you will have people who are Anglicans teaching you and have people who are non-denominational are teaching you and have someone you know, Pentecostal who's teaching you and also know where we are as an institution, I think that's good. I think that's one of the keys for the future of Christian education. We're using the term theological education just for our listeners. And that tends to be people who are preparing for some sort of ministry. But then there's Christian education, which is, you know, Biola is a Christian university. And I think being clear on who we are, what we believe, and where we're going is going to draw people who 100% align with you, but it's also going to draw people who 80% align with you and 70% align with you, probably not people who 30% align with you. They're, they're going to go sure. to institutions that align with them. So, so I think being that kind of institution, being educationally open to people of different backgrounds and different experiences really, really matters. And, you yeah. know, uh, Barry Corey, our president, talks about, I shouldn't say our president, my incoming president. So Barry Corey talks about having a uh, firm center and kind of soft edges. And I think that's what we're going to be at Biola and Talbot. So to sort of broaden it back out again, I think what I'm asking about is generationally, right? Yeah. So you're connected to people who are both in ministry, but also people who are sort of coming into it or people yeah. who are coming up, arriving at college or arriving at grad school for the first time. This is the COVID generation, right? You're going to be seeing students come in who didn't walk for graduation or, you know, they were in their real formative sort of adolescent teenage years during the 2016, 2020 elections. So I guess what I'm getting at is 
do you have a sense of how that's shaped the kinds of students that you're seeing, the places that are bringing you in and that you're traveling and connecting yeah. with people? And I would say too, my kids. So my kids, you know, didn't have a graduation, didn't have, you know, the senior activities. So, you know, my children have two kids in college, university, and one in grad school, University of Toronto, working on vocal performance and opera. I need to work that in because she's going to need a job soon and she's awesome. <laughs> um, the, you know, one of the things too in higher education, we found there were a million less students at the end of the pandemic than there were beginning of this pandemic and do people just quit going to college. And so when you hear, you know, schools struggling, that's, that's part of it. It's, it's all over the country. People are dealing with enrollment declines. And, you know, we recognize too, you know, as a private Christian education, it's, you know, it's not underwritten by the, by, by, by the by the state, you know, or the government at the level that a state institution would be. And it's, so it's more expensive. So people have to determine, is this, is this valuable? Now we still are finding lots of people saying that it's valuable if they believe and one of the things at Biola that's kind of distinctive is all of our students take a undergraduate minor in Bible. So if you're studying in psychology, you get an undergraduate minor in Bible. And I think that really matters today because we need to have students come out who are walking robust faith, understanding the scriptures and more. But I still would say your, your question is a good one. We don't really know fully the ramifications of the last few years on Christian higher education, but it came at a time where we're already at a demographic cliff. We're already in a very fracturing time in evangelicalism, and we all feel that. Ten years ago, we wouldn't be having the conversations that we'd be having, but we have to now because the place evangelicalism itself is so fractured. And I, I think those are challenges still to be faced, and it's an ongoing challenge in higher education. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've thought about this a ton this week because of what's been going on at Asbury, you know? Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit on the show last week, but then Sunday night I went down there again, and it was a wild experience. And I would say that between Wednesday and Sunday, the difference in what I experienced was really significant because there was such a, well, I'll put it this way. My expectation was to show up and see a circus, you right. know, vans, news vans, you know, buses of people coming in. And there was a little bit of that. And there's certainly like, you know, you're driving around and there's RVs parked where people have come from all over the country to be there. But then when you get onto the property where people are gathering, there were several things about it that made it fascinating to me. One was, I just feel like I can't say enough sort of kudos to the Asbury administration for how they handled it because they prioritized young people. My kids were with me, they're teenagers. The line, if, if my wife and I were going to try to get into Hughes Chapel, the line would have been probably three, four hours to get in. Mm. My kids were in in five minutes. Wow. And so they got to go in there and be in there for a couple of hours and listen cool. to some testimonies and, and, and worship. But even where we were, literally just right outside the chapel on the lawn in front of this big LCD screen, there were several hundred people gathered there. There were three of these big screens, and there were several hundred around each, each one of these screens. And, um, you know, we, we stood there, and you just felt this sense of both sort of awe and relief and a kind of desperation at the same time, right? Yeah. People are there because they're just deeply hungry. Yeah. And I talked to a lot of students, and, and it's part of why I'm asking some of these questions is, the thing I keep saying when people say what it's like, these kids, I didn't hear a single word about any of the culture war crap that has preoccupied us, you know, in, in so many of our conversations or, or what preoccupies people on Twitter and, and online. Yeah. You talk to the kids and they're talking about anxiety, depression, yep. suicidal thoughts, yeah. eating disorders, struggles with gender and sexuality. And so for them, it's not about the politics of any of this stuff. It's them crying out to God for relief. And so that's one of the ways when I think about the broader picture of Christian higher ed, and it goes back to the church too, but this broader question of we're seeing kids coming in who, you know, the word trauma is overused. 
I kind of don't want to use the word trauma, but they've been through something really intense with COVID and they've been through something where they've seen family members stop talking to each other over politics or neighbors stop talking to each other over politics. They've seen the me too stuff. They've seen these scandals in the churches. And I just feel like this is a frail time for them where Asbury is very encouraging, but the question always becomes what's next. Do, Do you have a thought on what's next? No, I think that's good. I think it's helpful. There, there has been, I mean, again, we're hesitant to use the word trauma, but I would say there has been a global trauma over the last few years and people experienced it differently. And, 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 you know, you were coming in with some of those as well. The questions about sexuality and gender identity weren't new, but they were accelerated questions about what we think about race and how we engage it weren't new, but they were accelerated. Ross, Ross Douthat had an article in the New York times called waking up in 2030 and he wrote it in 2020 wrote it june of 2020 he said everything's like accelerate all of a sudden we're having like 10 years of discussions and confusion and you know argument in in a year and i think that that has continued at a pace that's really not sustainable it appears the west goes through a cultural convulsion every 60 years uh david brooks has uh, an article in the atlantic called america's going through a moral convulsion that to makes this argument that i agree with i wrote about it changed a little bit called it a cultural convulsion for the uh, magazine I serve at Outreach Magazine, so so I think we're dealing with a generation that has not experienced well, and 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 our my age, our generation hasn't experienced this level of tumult and turbulence. So I think it definitely impacts and use the term frail, which I I, I think I could see where that would be a term that could be used. I would say tussled. I mean, they're just coming in experiencing something at a different level. And and this is why I think we're so fascinated by the Asbury revival is that, you know, the last time we saw something like that was 1968. You know, in 1968, we saw, you know, there was a global pandemic. You know, your grandparents called it the Hong Kong flu. We call it, I think, H3N2. There were huge protests. There were Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated April 4th. We saw Bobby Kennedy. We saw riots. We saw all these things happen. And from there, we actually saw that some tussled in a time of turbulence and tumult. We saw some kids, you call them, we don't call them kids at the university, we call them students. Uh, (laughs) But we saw some some young adults uh, actually in the midst of that look for something outside of themselves and bigger than themselves and they look to Jesus. And so, so yeah, Yeah. I I think that, that I was going to say, I mean, wasn't it 1969, 1970, Lonnie Frisbee ends up on Chuck Smith's front porch, right? 1968, ironically, the same year that I was talking about 1968, Chuck Smith turned to his daughter and said, I want to meet a hippie. And she brought home a guy named Lonnie Frisbee and they met and they started a Bible study on Wednesday night that exploded. And I'm assuming, and then Sunday night, Saturday night, and then it grew, outgrew, and it was the 60s, so they started communes, and they started coffee shops, and it went all up and down the coast. 20 to 30 million people, depending on who you ask, traced their spiritual heritage to that movement, including me with some burned-out hippies from the Jesus movement 10 years later who shared the gospel with me. Mm-hmm. So I think that, for me, you know, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens once wrote that history doesn't repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme. And 2020 sure feels like 1968 in so many ways. And, you know, we're still, what are we in now, the 38th month of 2020? The cultural division and brokenness hasn't slowed or ended. Right. So I'm kind of, I mean, is is there inklings of revival? I hope, I pray, you know, we sent our, some of our students from Biola are just coming back from Asbury. And I'm one who's unapologetic. This is, again, my unapologetic evangelical commitment is that I want to pray that men and women would hear and respond to the good news of the gospel. I'm going to pray that they walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray the Lord brings a great awakening. And Lord, let it begin with us in our lives and our hearts and grow from there. Yeah, amen to that. Well, Ed, good luck to you at Talbot. Congratulations. And I really appreciate you joining me for this conversation. I think this is 
this is encouraging stuff and it's and it's challenging stuff. There's implications for the church and beyond. So God bless you and your work and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, my friend. All right. Thanks again to Miroslav Wolf, Kate Shelnut, and Ed Stetzer for joining me today. And thank you for listening to The Bulletin. We will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. Hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky.